I was glad when they said unto me, We will go into the house of the Lord. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. A year ago, when we celebrated our anniversary, I spoke with you of the troubled times of the 1850s as we unknowingly walked the path towards civil war. From the flawed compromise of 1850, Lincoln's election in 1860, South Carolina's secession from the Union that December, the formation of the Southern Confederacy, and of how these momentous events affected both our community here in town and in particular St. Stephen's Parish. What would ensue from our new president's decision to reprovision the, the forts in Charleston's harbor and to restore the fractured Union would try men's souls far beyond anyone's worst nightmare at that time. How, indeed, could we ever have known what lay ahead? Few, if any, did, it would seem. The American Civil War would threaten not only our lives and our fortunes, the war embraced and permeated our entire American culture. Ridgefield and its Episcopalian citizenry could hardly have completely escaped the consequences of what took place on battlefields so distant from our rather bucolic hamlet, then with barely a tenth of the population of the present day. John's epistle for this first Sunday after Trinity informs us at some length of God's great love and of our need to love one another. He writes that perfect love casteth out fear because fear hath torment. But our four years of civil strife soon gave new birth and meaning to the very idea of fear, new definition for torment, and an unprecedented trial of faith, even doubt of the very existence of God himself. Perhaps this morning's collect is and was on target as it speaks of the weakness of our mortal nature, which prevents us from doing any good thing without God's blessing. In his second inaugural address, President Lincoln noted that each side read the same Bible, prayed to the same God. But God's answers to those prayers must sometimes have seemed of little comfort and reassurance, if of any at all, while the war wound its dreadful course. It's surely not an easy subject for us to address here today in this holy temple during this, the sesquicentennial year of that war's commencement. The story of our civil war, or the war between the states, if you prefer, has been a favorite subject for American historians since the days of Reconstruction, 
What caused it to happen? Was it a just war? Would it have turned out quite differently if Jackson had survived Chancellorsville? What if Lincoln had discovered Grant earlier on? And so forth. But attempting to deal with counterfactual positions is hardly our purpose here this morning. Drew Gilpin Faust, a long-recognized scholar of Civil War history and now the first woman president of Harvard University, recently has approached the war upon the eve of its sesquicentennial from a quite different perspective. Perhaps her title says it all. This republic of suffering, death, and the American Civil War. It's not my task here to review her work this morning, but what is quite clear to me, at least and well documented, I think, is that our nation, one might say its very soul, was severely challenged, profoundly affected, and transformed by this unprecedented experience. It had to be. Somewhere between 620 and 630,000 men died while serving in northern and southern armies. Their deaths, often painful, without relief or succor, so far from home, the disposal of their remains, the suffering endured by their families who had no opportunity for tendering comfort or for being comforted, created this new culture. Faust maintains that America was virtually overwhelmed by this qualitatively new experience and scale of dying and by the very understanding of the meaning of death itself for those who remained alive. It happened not just anywhere, but everywhere. Quantitatively, deaths may seem a little less personal perhaps, but nonetheless shocking. Military deaths in the Second World War for Americans were less than two-thirds of those of the Civil War in approximately the same period of time. One in every 50 Americans died militarily under, in duty during the Civil War, a rate six times higher than that which we experienced in World War II. The total number exceeded that of all of our wars put together of the 20th century. We should also note that in virtually every battle of the Civil War, the total number of casualties other than deaths, including those missed in action, wounded, disabled for life, were greater than those who lost their lives. Matthew Brady's Photographs of the human residue on fields of battle spoke vividly to the generation of that time. Faust has now put all of this and more into words for our own time. Our standard Ridgefield histories 
have far too little to say about what happened to those Ridgefielders who were sent into battle. In fact, they treat our lives here on the home front far too skimpily also. To rectify this rather astounding oversight, Charlie Pankaneer of the Ridgefield Men's Club has recently completed exhaustive research on that subject and his exceptional work published earlier this year under the title Ridgefield Fights the Civil War will surely enrich our understanding of the as we celebrate the sesquicentennial and follow our observances in the months ahead. And I would urge you to get yourselves a copy of that. Perhaps the best primary source available is the diary of Anna Marie Rezegui, published just a few years ago under the title a View from the Inn. Her father, Abijah Rezegui, by the way, served as a warden in our parish for some 20 years after the war was over. Their home during the war was the Keeler Tavern, where her diary was found. The initial response to President Lincoln's request for volunteers throughout the state was enthusiastic. Connecticut was solidly Republican throughout the war, once again supporting Lincoln in 1864, though by a somewhat less smaller margin, both here and in Ridgefield, here in Ridgefield and statewide. At a town meeting in May of 1861, it was resolved that we, loyal citizens of Ridgefield, hereby before God and men, take the oath of fidelity to the sacred flag of our country. Albert Van Dusen notes in his History of Connecticut, that a Ridgefield man who expressed satisfaction with the disaster at Bull Run was thoroughly ducked under the town pump. Rockwell's history avers that there were only three copperheads who dared to, to espouse the cause of the Confederacy. One Ridgefielder actually left to join the Confederate forces, according to Mr. Pankaneer. However, not surprisingly, hardships would take their toll on our initial enthusiasm as the town found it expedient to hire recruiting officers to furnish substitutes for those reluctant to serve to the tune of some $360 a person at one point. But that was a common practice throughout the Union during the war years, not peculiar to Ridgefield. Some 206 Ridgefielders served in the war on the Union side at one time or another, according to Rockwell's count. And he writes that, and I quote, many lost their lives upon the battlefield or in Confederate prisons while others came home to die. In August of 1862, the 17th Volunteer Regiment of Connecticut was mustered into service at Bridgeport and approximately a third of those who served in the military from our town were in the 17th during the course of the war. Ms. Rezegui's journal records local sadness when a townsman was killed at Gettysburg in July of 63. She writes, the funeral of Eddie Pickett, whose remains were brought home yesterday, is attended at our church, that would be the Congregational Church, this afternoon. A long procession of pedestrians as well as carriages followed 
the remains, his remains to the grave. His brother, Star, searched some time among the dead at Gettysburg before he was found. Sergeant Pickett was a member of the Connecticut 17th, a part of the first division of Oliver W. Howard's 11th Corps, known as the Unlucky 11th and probably well-named. And once again, it was notably unfortunate at Gettysburg on the first day of the battle. For Ridgefield that day, July 1st, 1863, was the most costly day of the war, notes Mr. Pankineer, with a total of 11 casualties in all. As for the 17th Regiment, during the entire three days of the battle, of its 386 men engaged, no less than 206 were listed as casualties, over one-half of the regimentals involved. The staggering figure on its own, but hardly unusual, is a part of the larger picture of the war itself. General Francis C. Barlow commanded the 1st Union Division, caught in the immediate route of the 11th Corps. James Stuart Montgomery, in his History of Gettysburg, relates that as Barlow attempted to rally his troops, being pursued by General John B. Gordon's brigade, he was felled by a mini-ball through the chest. Gordon, he writes, following along behind these advancing troops, or his advancing troops, blame came upon this officer lying on his back. Gordon knelt beside him, got his name, offered what help he could. At Barlow's request, he agreed to inform Mrs. Barlow, who was traveling with the Union Army, of her husband's apparently mortal wound, and he did so. After the war, the two men were to meet again, quite by accident, Gordon having long assumed that Barlow had died at Gettysburg. We're informed that these two became warm friends. Gordon, by the way, went on to become governor of Georgia and a United States senator after the war was over. And oh yes, not so, by the way, his great-grandson, Prince Gordon and family, lived here in Ridgefield during Aaron's ministry and were active members of our parish and became friends of mine. Our parish records are strangely silent with respect to St. Stephen's relationship to the war itself. Ten days prior to Fort Sumter, we held our annual meeting as usual in the basement of the church and elected officers. Annual meetings in those days, by the way, were held on Easter Sunday. It would seem that nothing unusual was afoot. Normal activities continued throughout the war, for that matter. Services were held as usual. The Army of Northern Virginia made no forays into Connecticut as the British had once done, no burning of our church. Four marriages took place in the initial year of the war, for the next, we are told. 
Special meetings were held during the war, in particular to find a replacement for Mr. Williams, our rector, upon his resignation after 10 years of service. In order to secure a replacement, the vestry found it necessary to raise the annual salary for the rector to $1,000. To meet this higher expense, the cost of pews was raised by 40%. Now, if there's anyone here from the stewardship committee this morning, it might be worth some consideration. <laughs> well, maybe not. The salary, by the way, was in addition, in addition to use of the rectory or parsonage, which was then just to the south of where we sit today, the other side of where South Hall is, just down the block along Main Street. As to more immediate associations with our men serving in the war, we haven't a great deal to go on, though our parish records and town histories, histories afford us some help here. Rockwell writes of, a, I think, an interesting experience of Jacob Dauchy, and he writes, a very interesting day to the soldiers of the 11th Regiment was the occasion when President Lincoln visited our encampment at City Point. Jacob Legrand Dauchy of Ridgefield often related the incident. The president and his party arrived by steamboat, and walking up to the camp, Lincoln spied an axe sitting, sticking into a block. The temptation was too great. Encounter and, mount and sauntering over to the woodpile, he picked up the axe and began chopping the log. The soldiers, in great excitement, gathering round, each one anxious to gather one of the chips. Dauchy described the president chopping away, swinging the axe with his long arms, his high hat and, and long black frock coat adding to the charm of the scene. He also notes that this may have been the last time that President Lincoln used an axe. The Dauchy family was long active in our parish, two members serving here as wardens. A third, Nathan Dauchy, is commemorated for his long service by a plaque, which you can view today on the south side of the, of the nave as you leave church this morning at the rear of the church. One of our 1862 marriages held at the rectory was that of Albert Ruggles and Emily Olmsted of Bridgeport. Sergeant Ruggles was later wounded, wounded at Winchester, Virginia in 1864. Rufus Meade and Amos Raymond served in the 17th Regiment. Raymond was wounded at Chancellorsville in 63, the site of Jackson and Lee's greatest victory over Union armies. Frederick Grumman, a relative of our organist, enlisted in Company D of the 5th Regiment in March of 64. He died in September of that same year. Parish records show that Sylvester Godfrey received his first communion here at St. Stephen's in 1861. In December, he was captured <clears throat> at Fort Darling in Virginia. A few months, few months later, Godfrey was to die at Andersonville Prison, hundreds of lonely miles.
from Ridgefield and his parish. Do these Ridgefield memories confirm Dr. Faust's analysis of the wars upon our suffering republic? I don't know. We do know that in the Civil War it made little difference whether soldiers wore or civilians supported butternut or blue, and that the suffering was not restricted to the killing fields themselves. In any case, our community and parish were spared the worst. The doors of our church remained open. If the war raised opportunities for doubt, even for apostasy, as indeed it may have, our church records and town histories remain silent on that subject. Ridsfield's churches were regularly attended during the war years, and there is certainly no indication that the needs of St. Stephen's parishioners were not recognized and well addressed. As your occasional historian, I can hardly tell you anything more than that, but I don't want to leave it just there. I also believe that there is additional meaning for all of us in the history and the story of Gordon and Barlow, though it occurred at Gettysburg hundreds of miles from Ridgefield. That story informs us both of love and of redemption. Gordon in the midst of that terrible conflagration at Gettysburg, became an instrument of God's peace. Where there was hatred, he sowed love. Where there was injury, pardon. And where there was discord, union. This is the love of which John's epistle, which Aaron just read, speaks to us today, the love that casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. In a sense, such love as that is really why we're here this morning, and why 150 years ago this is where others worshipped and I think found comfort, possibly even answers to those weighty questions about the problems of suffering and death, even as perhaps we do now. We know, as they once knew, I think, that love defeats death. And so each one of us may be glad when they say unto us, we will go into the house of the Lord. He is here now in this very special holy temple, as he was so long ago. Amen.